Hello, my friend. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, and I hope everyone's doing okay. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole is a little podcast where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and also my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless and set theme every episode. It really is just an attempt to archive some stories, interviews and great music for like-minded rock music fans. I will choose from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It's not a countdown, as they are stupid, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to support a musician by buying some tickets, music or merch, or listen to an old favourite album and check out some of this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people do like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I've missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I will never check this email address at go fuck yourself forward slash cockgoblin. That's cock spelt with a K, and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole podcast or via the website arockandrollrabbithole.com I'd love to hear from you The website also has Spotify playlists of all the songs used in each episode past episodes including the occasional bonus episode that I do and some other golden magic I also have small playlists of the great lesser known artists that I highlight at the end of each episode on the victims tab of the website Please, please rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast if you're digging it. That is super helpful and appreciated. Thanks again and here goes. So where I am, we're in and out of stupid lockdowns. So episode 24 is songs with the word in and or out in the titles. Before we start, I just want to thank a few people for spreading some good vibes my way this week. Glenn Howard, Brett Gasket. Brett is your man for guitar builds, guitar fixing, and general man-shoring here in Melbourne. Check out his guitars on Instagram, Gasket Guitars, G-A-S-K-E-T-T, and you should be fine with the spelling of the word guitars. James Glorbitz and Roscoe Hetherington. 
And a huge thank you to the legend Mark Eberlein for sending me a mug from his wood tattoo studio in St Agnes, which is a wee island off the coast of England. Mark also made me two wood coasters with the podcast logo on them. I was super humbled to receive them. Check out my Instagram, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast, to see the coasters. The world can be a pretty good place sometimes. A moron from Australia does a stupid podcast and someone on the other side of the planet takes their talent, time and money to post it to me. Thanks, mate. You definitely brightened up a shitty week for me. You can check out Mark's wood tattoos on Instagram too. Skilly underscore wood tattoos. S-C-I-L-L-Y. And also a quick shout out to Damo Forks in England for schooling and scolding me for missing this classic, which could have easily gone in the bass intro episode and also in several places of the body parts double episode with its triple based intro, flesh tuxedo, pink torpedo, thanks to Damo, bum, bottom, behind, cheek, love gun, mud flap mentioning, big bottom by Spinal Tap. Episode 24, In and Out. So I'm going to start with an absolute gem with the word in in its title. And this was this UK band's first charting song in the US, sneaking in at number 99 in 1985. And the song made it in the top 20 down here in Australia. And here's Robert Smith talking about poison and hair. We've got the water boys on filling in, in the middle of hectic preparation, the cure. Now, now, gentlemen, Robert in particular, I'm a bit of a medical man myself, and I can tell that you, you gentlemen haven't been well in the last week. Is that the case? No, we haven't. We were poisoned in France. Was this a deliberate policy on behalf of the French government? It was. It just... it, yeah, it was the Greenpeace t-shirts we were wearing. It, it didn't happen in a restaurant or anything like that? Yeah, it did. <laughs> You're not going to name the place? Um, yeah, I may as well actually. Laku Pool. Never go there. It's All right, well, there's a recommendation from Robert Smith. Now, um, the, the one question that a lot of viewers of this program are really going to want to ask, uh, particularly my mother, is how do you get your hair to do that? Um, I borrow Simon's tricks. Simon's what? His tricks. Oh, well, look, while I'm staying here getting more hairstyling tips from The Cure, we're going to go back to the studio and the video. Same procedure. OK, we've just got time for first of two numbers from The Cure. This is In Between Days, The Cure.
Well, the more that time goes on, the more I appreciate the chemistry of our group, the four of us and then Phil, you know, our secret creative boss, because it becomes apparent what everyone's strengths are. And Will's is really kind of an anchoring. Mm. When I think of him, I really, I, I think of something very heavy and, you know, granite-like in, in a great way. Mm. Like the base of a statue, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And without that, the thing topples. And so, while sometimes we can fall out over, you know, he's, he would sometimes like a darker sound line, I'm more like, let's make it more like blurred lines. Ultimately, that chemistry is what keeps us together. That was Coldplay's Chris Martin talking about drummer Will Champion. And here's their entitled nugget, In My Place. Here's a few in and out songs we've heard in previous episodes. Episode 6's F-Bombs had Killing in the Name of. Rage Against the Machine's Bullet in the Head in episode 21's bass intros. Episode 3's Countings had Bob Marley's Waiting in Vain. No, no, 
Episode 3 also had a deeper dig on the Beatles song A Day in the Life. Episode 20, Songs with Brackets in the title, had Pride in the Name of Love by U2 and Street Spirit Fade Out by Radiohead. Street Spirit Fade Out was the first mention of an outie, so let's list a few of them now. And I'm going to start with a great Aussie song from 1985 that was a number one hit in Australia and made it to number 37 in the USA. A critic called the song a bloated bag of pop cliches, and I call the critic a cock goblin as it's a great song. Out of Mind, Out of Sight by The Models. Another song that I adore without in the title is this absolute masterpiece. Odd song, odd. The, the thing about with without you to remember is how odd it sounded when it came out. Weird, odd. It's, it's a rum, vibe. Rumbling it's bass. Kind there's of just a really amazing vibe. Whispering guitar and there's mumbling voice, and then you get to this big chorus. And but it, it's it's. We were students of this Roy Orbison tortured love song mm-hmm. thing, the slightly off-color love song. And uh, we've written a few, but that's, uh, that was probably the start of it. So you had no idea at the time that that was going to become what it was? Uh, it almost ended up in the bin because we couldn't get an arrangement that worked. We, there was an experiment with um, this infinite guitar that I'd mm-hmm. just received from mm-hmm. a friend. He basically made in his garage, which is a guitar that when you depress the string, the note keeps going, mm-hmm. like it was a, a synthesizer key. Mm-hmm. And so I literally unpacked the thing, plugged it in, and was just playing in the other room. And I think Bono and, and Gavin were, were listening through the door, and they happened to put on the With or Without You track. I said, what's, what's that? So I just said, it's this infinite guitar thing. He said, that's it, let's put that on this track. So Saved it couple of takes and by just stripping out everything 
or just the bass, it just cast a spell. It was just this tension mm. immediately introduced, and that was kind of the the moment where it, it came back out of the bin <laughs> because we couldn't get it. We were like, you know, I was playing regular guitar, and it was just sounding so immediately too big because mm. mm. it has mm. so much. Uh, opera in it. Yeah. So this was like bringing it the opposite way, mm. like right down to its essence. So there were, there were three of us in, in the flat at that time. There was uh, uh, me, Paul, and, and Nick as well, and we were sharing the flat together in, in the east end of Glasgow in a place called Deniston. And um, I think your bedroom was called the, the Grief Hole. The Grief Hole? Because it had no windows. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Like it's a, a, very a windowless, a windowless yeah. box. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, well, we used to mix demos in the Grief Hole, grief hole as well because that's where your PC was. That's right, yeah. I can't yeah, believe yeah. you didn't call your band the Grief Hole. Right, yeah. Oh, no, I never, never even thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the next band, that, that's what they can be, yeah. Yeah, so the, that, that's how we did record at the time. We had an old uh, PC computer and uh, we used to sort of demo everything onto that. And yeah, it, it was it was Nick and I first, like in in the flat with a couple of acoustic guitars and a keyboard, like like a uh, one of those old Casio home keyboard kind of things that you have. Uh, because it was just the two of us in the flat, we were using the the accompaniment on the keyboard to keep time. And and so, you know how you have these sort of things where you hold down a key and it'll sort of do the auto accompaniment, like it'll play along, and you you can either play in this, in the style of a waltz or a military march or a cha 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 or a rumba, yeah. or as as we were using the bluegrass setting. So yeah. when it came to the riff, like when when we would actually worked out the riff, the uh, that thing that like, going over the chord progression that we had, and Nick was just playing along with um, 
the bluegrass setting. Uh, this, I, I, I can't. I mean, I can't play his part either. This, like, something yeah, like that, something like it? that. And it is pretty much the the bluegrass setting on a Casio keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> the song I definitely could have put in episode one's building intros is Franz Ferdinand's "Take Me Out." best entitled song off a favourite album of mine, August and Everything After, Counting Crows, Raining in Baltimore. The circus is falling down on its knees The big top is crumbling down It's raining in Baltimore Fifty miles east Where you should be No one's around I need a phone call I need a raincoat I need a big love
Gallagher talking about a song which Liam claims that Noel would sing Jim Will Fix It, but the song eventually turned into an entitled classic Don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis. That was a good moment when we recorded that in the, in the, in the studio. I remember thinking, fucking hell, this is going to be brilliant. That was written in an hotel room in Paris, right? And when we were just on the way to Sheffield Arena to play our first ever arena gig in 90. And I was doing it in the sound check and I was the soul Sally bit. I wasn't singing that. And he came up to me in the sound check and he went, Are you singing Soul Sally Can Wait? No, I walked through and said, Yeah, I reckon you should fucking sing. Soul Sally Can Wait. Right, which is the truth. Did he write that lyric? Yes, or did you because he said did. And he reckons I was, you know. But he said, Alright, let's just say for argument's sake. Right. So he alluded to the fact, well, Are you singing Soul Sally Can Wait? And I said no, and he said, well, you should do. So what were you singing at the time? You were singing I don't know, I was singing, I don't know, I, I don't it. know. Jill, Jill, So fucking it. I don't know, but get on this. I was at, no, I, was at now, I was at a gig one night, and some girl came up to me and she said, real earnest, like, her name wasn't earnest, but she said, eh, you know the song, Don't Look Back in Anger? And I went, yeah, and she went, is Sally, Sally Cinnamon? And I went, oh, that's fucking brilliant. I wish I'd have fucking come up with that. One night in Paris, rainy night, after being out, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, I'd been out at a strip club <laughs> and kind of wrote it drunk, got up the next day and the words were lying there on a fucking thing and the guitar was on, a, on the floor in a hotel room and I played it back. My initial reaction to it was, that'll sound pretty good if we do it for the next record. And lo and behold, it's become as big as the band. You know what I mean? It's kind of like as big as Oasis. Maybe even bigger. But that's another fascinating thing. It's like if you, I get asked about that song a lot, particularly around the world. Mm -hmm. Did you know? And it's like, well, 
if you'd have even had a fucking nano thought of what that song has become, you'd never finish it. Because you'd never, how could what you'd written live up to what it's become? Mm. The reason it's become what it has is because it's pure expression. It wasn't thought out. It was something that was going on in the air that night. Maybe Sally was one of the strippers. I don't know. And it started off as a song. This song is about a woman of a certain age whose life has passed her by, but she's raising a glass thinking, you know what? Fuck it. I don't care. I've got no regrets. And then it's morphed into this anthem of defiance of like, we will not be fucking cowed. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's a fucking wonderful fucking thing. It is a wonderful thing. That's magic. It's absolute magic. But they come from a place of truth. Now, what that truth is, everybody's got their own opinion of it. It'll mean so you'll think back to your mates in the pub and those nights in the park or wherever, you know what I mean? Or football matches. Mm. But the essence of that song is it comes from some fucking point of truth. It has to because why do so many people around the world? I'm telling you now, they fucking love that shit in North Korea. <laughs> they can't even fucking speak English, right? So it kind of blows my mind. Mm. You know, there's footage of a crowd singing it at a Chinese football match. You know, like 40,000, you know, at a football match. You know, what the fuck was going on that night? It kind of like blows me away, you know. But yeah, so it's like, I guess when you're sitting down to noodle watching the TV, I'm thinking anything could happen here. Any fucking thing could happen. Could Kid A, Kid a and Amnesiac, could it have been the Radiohead double album? Could it have been all 23 tracks? Yeah, but it, I, whether we were ready to be that bold then and release a double double yeah. album, I think that that required you know you've got to have a lot of, you know a lot of confidence and I think it would have watered everything down. Yeah, could you certainly. That's right, and certainly the the impact of the the there's a great story that one of our one of our managers Bryce says that when they first played it to the, to the publishing company, the and we just re-signed <laughs> with them. And they're expecting, like, you know, guitars. And so, you know, the first song, everything's the right place, not a guitar. The second song, uh, Kid A, not a guitar. No, the, the third song, National Anthem, not a, not guitar. a guitar. And they're literally sweating, you know. It, it, the impact of the record was, was that much great. And this, again, it's like, it's what we were trying to do on this record in Rainbows. I think that record's like 40 minutes long. It's just, it's a good, it's a good slab of music. It's a good time to listen to something. It's so did you have to be one around? Like there's three songs on Kid A with guitars on them. If I said that to you six months before the album was released, would you be like, oh my God, I can't do this? No, no, because what happened is that it's the, it's the process, what happened on Kid A was the process of everything breaking down mm. over time. Mm. So what we basically did, good at that. we reduced everything to a pile of rubble and ashes. And the first thing that came out, and it was a about, we, we were in this, it was, so we'd been doing this for six months and we were in this big old house in the middle of the Gloucestershire countryside and Tom did everything in its right place with Nigel and it was like, wow, you know, and that was the first thing and, and the rest of us weren't, really, weren't involved with that in the recording of that and it was just like, well, that's beautiful. So, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, you, shed all your, you shed all that stuff. But the weird thing is that, of course, you do that... Um, um, and that, then you go back to what you've got and you realise you've actually got yeah. already three quarters of the way down and yeah. you didn't realise you just right. need like a linchpin thing which sort of brings everyone into focus and they yeah. go, oh, okay, yeah. I get it. And I, with this record, it was videotaped, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. That was Tom and Ed talking about Radiohead's album Kid A with their opening track Glory and the entitled magic of everything in its right place. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, 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 I'm not gonna lie,
alternative rock band Anne Boleyn took their band name from this misheard backing lyric where it sounds like Tom York is singing Anne Boleyn. Next up, we have another British song we briefly touched on in episode four's Songs About Drugs. In that episode, John Lennon tells the story about the drug rumour. Here's Paul McCartney talking about the song. It's almost a better story that John just wrote Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds himself, mm. that it's attributed to LSD, etc., etc. All the little legends that have grown up about it. But unfortunately, it's just not true. Mm. You know, that I was there and we had a great session because we, we loved the subject matter. It wasn't about LSD because otherwise it would have been called Litzwood. Because the initials aren't LSD, Lucy in the sky with yeah, diamonds yeah. is more like, you yeah. know. But it was made up as were the sort of Paul is dead rumours. All these, the climate, as you remember, was sort of a bit crazy anyway. And uh, once an American DJ got hold of this stuff. So I think with all these distortions that were beginning to happen, there's a kind of sort of revisionism was starting, I sensed. And I thought, well, look. I don't want to kind of put John down at all. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm his biggest fan. I'm the last person to do that because I really feel very privileged and loved every second that we had together. I mean, well, let's face it, you know, Lennon McCartney, to be McCartney in the Lennon McCartney songwriting partnership was fantastic, mm. you know, they say. But um, I thought it was time to set one or two little things straight, like that Lucy in the Sky thing. I said, okay, I arrived there. John would then say, picture yourself, because it was very, very John open. That because it's very Lewis Carroll. Yes. Picture yourself. Yes. You know, John, um, John and I both loved Alice. So we, it was kind of our starting point rather than LSD. Yes. It was more Alice in Wonderland. You yes. know? So we went through it. I, I came out with newspaper taxis. He'd, he'd parry with, uh, you know, go with a looking less eyes. I'd come out back with kaleidoscope or whatever this. Uh, cellophane. It's always been a favorite word of mine, that cellophane. But, so, so that was basically the idea. So I thought, well, whether people believe me or the revisionism doesn't really matter to me, but I, I think I ought to get it down. And here's Julian Lennon telling a story about his friend that inspired the picture. What, what was the drawing that you made of Lucy O'Donnell right. that led to Lucy in the Sky in the Diamonds by the Beatles? Which has also led me to be the global ambassador of the Lupus Foundation, because that's sadly what she passed away from. But um, How old was she when she passed away from that? Uh, she was in her 30s, I believe, or uh, late 30s. Um, uh, the, the drawing, I don't really recall so clearly. I mean, what, what, what was three, four, five? Um, to now, now, Dave Gilmore right. from Pink Floyd believes he has the drawing. And I've run into him a few times, and I kept saying, come on, give it back. Right. <laughs> but I, I've, seen, I've actually seen the, 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 uh, the picture in the book, and I have to say that I don't know if it's what I recall. <laughs> Check out the Golden Magic page on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, to see the picture they're chatting about. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the Beatles. Yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Cellophane. 
Motley Crue's Nicky and Vince talking about how they build their songs up from acoustic arrangements up to the inappropriately lyriced and entitled All In The Name Of. Motley is a band where, uh, and I think Vince will, you know, attest to this, is how many songs did I bring in and just on an acoustic guitar? That was always. Like, like Shout yeah. At The Devil, yeah. I think it was like, you know, just like this or Livewire. Most everything just comes off an acoustic guitar. That's the easiest guitar to carry around with you, and right. And then, you know, Vince is like, "Whoa, that's cool." Mick plugs in, grabs the riff. Tommy jumps behind the drums. You know, we'd make some arrangement changes. Vince dives into it. And next thing, it sounds like Motley Crue. But I guess the point is, any song that can be taken down to just like the simplest format uh, can then be put into any genre. You take any Rolling Stones song, it could be electronic to country to bluegrass, and I think it's the same. I've, I've heard like crazy renditions of, of people's music. another classic out-titled song recorded in 1977. Billy Joel's rhythm sections have always been so great. And at, at the end of the song, there's sort of that car, motorcycle sound effect. That was Doug Stegmeier's Corvette. He actually, we wanted some kind of a, uh, the sound of a car peeling out. And Doug Stegmeier at the time had a Corvette. I don't, it was like a 60s era Corvette. And he, took his little tape machine in the car with him and hung the microphone over the rear end of the car and then was burning rubber and doing, you know, screeching away from uh, his, his house. And that's where that sound came from. That's Doug's vet doing that. And then that leads into sort of that whole, that Layla sort of section at the end. Right. That sort of, and to me, it, that always just sort of, you know, the studio version just sort of fades out right as that starts to get going. Was that originally supposed to be a lot longer. We went on and on and on. Uh, they they faded it out, but that ending went on for as long as the Layla section. Yeah, it just went on and on. We were just having too much fun playing. We couldn't stop. And we'd look at Phil and he'd just go, nah, just keep going. Who knows how much of this we're going to use? Just go, <laughs> go with it. Did it bum you out that the final version had to be a certain length? Yeah, but it always bums me out when they have to edit something. But I think sometimes things do need editing because you can be self-indulgent too. And even though you like it, other people can start to get tired of it. 
Um, you, but you need to edit. Uh, you need and you, the the education of self-editing is a good process to learn because um, you got to learn when enough is enough and you know not be excessive. Let's have a listen to the part Billy was talking about with the car noise and the Layla-like outro of a song featured in episode 20, Songs with Brackets. Moving out, Anthony's song. Hey, this is Gordon Gano. And I'm Brian Ritchie. We are Violent Femmes. And we're going to talk about a song called Blister in the Sun. What's the song Blister in the Sun about? Uh, probably almost 20 years after having written it and then recorded it with the band and putting it out, I was in conversation with somebody. I was talking about the song and said, blah, 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 something about it. And then saying, well, you, you know, everyone knows what that's about. And I said, no, why don't you, why don't you tell me? What's, what is this song about? And he said, uh, masturbation. And I was really surprised. Was it about <laughs> sweat or? I think the technical term is wet dream. I wrote the song initially thinking a woman was going to be singing it. Big hands, I know you're the one. I just thought of big hands because mine are small, so that's an opposite. So I was acquainted with Gordon and uh, our drummer, original drummer, Victor DiLorenzo, I, I took him down to the coffee house where Gordon was playing. And the first thing he played was Blister in the Sun, so he played and then Victor went so he originated that famous drum lick just completely spontaneous I've heard it played several times uh, when I was just walking around walking past a pub and there's a cover band once I walked up to the front of the stage and I was just kind of like standing there and they're like looking at me this creepy guy looking at us and then, then one of them recognized. That was fun. Major sports stadiums, all kinds of sports will play um, the riff and that's just amazing. The record company in their genius decided that they wouldn't put Blister in the Sun out as a single because it didn't have a bass drum. Blister in the Sun was always our most popular song but they didn't have, have the brains to uh, release it as a single. Through a long process of word of mouth, playing the gigs, other people doing covers of it, radio stations going rogue and playing it anyway, even though the record company didn't want them to, it became a standard before it was a hit. Sometimes we get asked, do we ever get tired of playing it? The thing is, which I think Brian agrees, I think I've heard say, is that, in, certainly I'll speak for myself, with never tired of doing it for an audience and for people because there's such such joy and such, you know, the reaction and, and, and people join, you know, the, you can feel it. It's wonderful to be able to incite such enthusiasm by simply doing what we do and having a song that has that impact.
Here's another song we heard in episode 20's bass intros, but I'm adding it again for a few reasons. It's great. It has out in the title. Once you hear my breathing edit of the song, you won't be able to ever unhear it. And there is one more reason. Time is running out by Muse. Try to not hear Matthew Bellamy breathing. I think I'm drowning, asphyxiated. I wanna break this spell that you've created. You're something beautiful, a contradiction. I wanna play the game, I want the friction. For a loose Chris Cornell, Jeff Buckley, Ben Harper, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, Peter Tosh, Green Day, side in and out rabbit hole. I saw Chris Cornell solo playing in Melbourne in 2011 and he had an old school red dial type telephone on stage. And here's Chris explaining that phone. Um, after my friend passed away, and uh, a 
first time I ever did an acoustic show, I was grabbing, I was in my bedroom and, and, and I was grabbing stuff like a, like a capo, things like that, picks, shit that I needed in. And I had it in there and I saw it and I grabbed it and thought, you know, I'll take it with me and, and put it on stage. And so I did. And, and then uh, ever since then, now I just kind of like have it there. And that's the actual true version. And here's Soundgarden's great outtitled Blow Up the Outside World. information obtained by Seven. It reveals the moment an MGM Grand employee phoned police after Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell was found dead inside a Detroit hotel room. Yeah, that incident May 18th at the MGM Grand after the Soundgarden concert. Seven investigator Jonathan Carlson here now with a 911 call and some new details on this. Jonathan. Yeah, guys, some have questioned the timeline surrounding when help arrived for Cornell and if he actually killed himself. Police say an exhaustive investigation found no holes in the timeline or anyone's stories. But what we learned today, if the bodyguard is to be believed, hotel security and protocol delayed anyone from getting in that room. The seven investigators obtaining the 911 call at rocker Chris Cornell's death. A glimpse into the early hours of the tragedy and how the hotel responded and called for help. What is the address of the emergency? 1777 3rd Street, the MGM Casino. I have a non-responsive guest in a hotel. It's going to be a 50-year-old male inside of room 1136. He's not breathing. After some back and forth, the hotel gets more intel on what's actually going on in room 1136. They found out that the guest was attempting to hang himself, so they're trying to get him down so they can assist with CPR. 
CPR would ultimately fail. Action News also reviewing investigative reports which confirm what went down at the hotel room that night. Cornell's wife, frantic after talking to the singer, calls his bodyguard on site. That bodyguard went to the hotel room. He kicked down two doors to gain entry. He told officers he saw Cornell on the floor with the band around his neck. The Wayne County Medical Examiner ruling Cornell's death a suicide by hanging. And in those reports, we also learned that the bodyguard spent precious time going back to his room asking security to come open Cornell's hotel room, but they refused because it wasn't his room. A while later, he knocked down the door. The bodyguard also says life-saving measures went on for almost an hour before Cornell was pronounced dead. I'm Jonathan Carlson, 7 Action News. Earlier, Chris Cornell was talking about a friend in the phone. That friend was Jeff Buckley. Here's Ben Harper also talking about Jeff Buckley. The most defining musician, artist, songwriter for me of, our, of my generation, our generation, is uh, Jeff Buckley. And the summer of 1995, we were on the summer festival circuit, and uh, Jeff was on that circuit as well in Europe. And um, we had some very great, memorable moments, one of which was we were in France and we were going on before Jeff at this festival. And um, on the same festival circuit was Page and Plant. They were doing a No Quarter Tour. Come on. <laughs> and they had a Middle Eastern Orchestra, and it was just phenomenal. And um, so, Jeff and myself and the drummer and the Innocent Criminals, Oliver Charles. We had all planned to meet up after Jeff's show. We, we came off and watched Jeff play. We had made plans to go meet Jeff on the Jimmy Page side of the stage. And it being France, Jeff was king of France and I was second in his court. <laughs> sake right on to the side of the stage and get the job done. So right after Jeff came off an incredible show, the festival was called Hurricane in Belfort. And Jeff right away had to get whisked off to do an interview. He was, I think, interviewing for the cover of a magazine called Rock and Folk or something like that, an important, prominent French magazine. <laughs> no, I mean, I really I've been on the cover of it too, so it better did, so it's certainly wrong. <laughs> and so we said, okay, Jeff was like, damn, because he didn't, he didn't love press and he didn't love journalists. Can you believe that? <laughs> um, and so we, we, again, made an agreement, we'll meet on that side. So Oliver and I and a couple of friends went to the side of the stage and the security guards were like, nope, it's on lockdown by request of, of you know, man. And so we said, uh, this isn't good. Because <laughs> we don't know where Jeff's doing the interview and if it's photos and how are we going to find Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. And Oliver and I weren't nearly as concerned as the girls we were with. <laughs> they were very concerned about where Jeff was. <laughs> And, but we were concerned too. Okay. So we said, here's what Jeff would do. He'd go around to 
the other side of the stage. And so we went around to the other side of the stage. There we found a security guard who also wouldn't let us on stage, but was very sympathetic to how famous we thought we were. <laughs> right? So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll lose my job if you come up. You know, here we're barking at him in English. We may as well have been saying, would you order us a Big Mac and a Starbucks and, you know, get us a Ford, uh, you know, etc." Mustang. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll let you down in the press pit. Head on down to the press pit and uh, you can watch from there. And we figured, okay, Jeff would do the same thing. He said, no, no. And we said, okay, if you see Jeff Buckley, send him down here too. He was like, okay. <laughs> this dude was like 10 of me. So we go down to the press pit, and one song goes by, two songs go by, three songs go by. We're wondering, where's Jeff, where's Jeff, where's Jeff, where's Jeff? Then another song, it, let me also illustrate this story, because it is going somewhere. <laughs> In Europe, they have festivals of 100,000 people, so the field, it's giant 40, 50 foot high stacks of speakers with scaffolding all around them, and they blast the music to a field of 100 plus thousand people. And there's no speakers in the back or any, all the sound for the whole field comes from the speakers. So the next song starts and it's, it's killing. And I see something, I go, oh, a bird must have flown by. And I look up and there is Jeff hanging off. He has climbed up the speaker scaffolding. And I you swear, it's at least 120 decibels, if a dime. And he's hanging off the scaffolding like this, just pulling <laughs> his head, and there's sweat, and he's just, and ah! And I look up and I go, that's the craziest shit I've ever seen in my life, because I know he didn't have any earplugs. Ben Harper, Diamonds on the Inside. Everything. You have everything to lose She made herself a better nails And she's planning on putting it to use But she had diamonds on inside I'm now going to square peg a Led Zeppelin influenced song that almost has the word in in the title. That song is Mojo Pin, but I'm going to pronounce it Mojo In for this episode just because I can. Jeff Buckley, Mojo In.
last section of Mojo Pin definitely has a Led Zeppelin sound to it and here's a Led Zeppelin song that Ben Harper has definitely bled some inspiration from too. Another in song, Led Zeppelin in my time of dying.
last song in my time of dying by Led Zeppelin is from the Led Zeppelin album Physical Graffiti. The last stop on this side rabbit hole is The Stones, Peter Tosh and Green Day. We spoke earlier of the Led Zeppelin album Physical Graffiti and nothing to do with this rabbit hole really, but the building photo used for the album cover was the same New York building where Mick and Keith meet in the video clip for Waiting on a Friend. Reggae legend Peter Tosh is also sitting on the stoop with them. Waiting for a Friend is a song that Green Day singer Billy Joe Armstrong said he would like played at his funeral. Check out the clip on the Golden Magic tab of arockandrollrabbithole.com and watch when Mick and Keith meet the rest of the Stones in a pub and Mick does his best Mick and a super high Ronnie and Keith dance and stagger along while Charlie and Bill look on and chuckle before they mime the outro as the tucked in the corner pub band. So next up, we have an ACDC song off their new album, Power Up. When this song dropped in October during the lockdown, it was like a breath of fresh air in an elevator full of vegetarian farts for me. The things were pretty rough in 2020 with no gigs, etc., and same for a lot of us. And I was so happy that my buddy Dean Del Rey had ACDC on his podcast. Check out those if you haven't heard them. They were so good. And the album was great too. So here's ACDC with the entitled Shot in the Dark. So last week in part two of Body Parts, we had the entitled Brothers in Arms. And apologies in advance here, here it is again in a different format. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. If I was to say to you, hey man, I dig that choir. I really don't like the choir. I really can't stand a choir. In fact, I'd like to set those cunts on fire. Brothers in Arms by Choir Straits, including some voice percussion attempts that sound like pre-COVID sneezes. <laughs> so shit. Let's move on. 
the, like, um, the way I write lyrics is I open my mouth and I see what comes out. And um, I was going through uh, an, an, an unpleasant divorce. And um, I guess I was very angry, I was very bitter, I was very upset. And I think you can probably tell that from the song. But uh, all these stories, it's like Chinese whispers. Whenever I come to America, then I hear a new bit. There's this person who reckons that I've, you know, I saw someone drowning and I witnessed the thing and then I've invited the guy to come to the concert and sat him down in the front row and sang the song. <laughs> yeah. All I did was write the song, really. But anything you hear, let it be said, right here, right now, anything you hear about this song is not true. So what I did was, I, I, we, I, we just got this drum machine in Japan, one of the early ones, and uh, I got one synthesizer and I set up this drum pattern and straight away that created an atmosphere for me that was that had a lot of space in it you know then I, I set up this sound on the keyboard because I like the sound it's always a good start and then I like these chords See, so you can write in the air tonight when you go home. It's really that easy. But anyway. So all those words, they just came out. All those words just came out at that time. And, and then when we recorded the track, I said to Hugh Padgham, the, drum, the engineer, I said, the drums come in here. And originally, my demo, the drums just quietly came in. You know, just quietly, quietly. And then when we, did this, uh, when we did the track, we got this sound in the studio, and we did about four takes of it or something. And uh, that particular take that we, you know, we ended up using had ba 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 I mean, the one before was probably da-da-da-da-da-da, or, or, you know, boom, da 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 you know, I could And then suddenly this, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da has been a noose around my neck for the last 20 years. Here with Roger Hodson from uh, Legendary Super Tramp, very successful solo career. Roger, thanks for joining us oh, here. It's, it's nice to be here with you. Uh, when folks think of iconic albums, uh, I'd say easily Breakfast in America is one of the ones that comes to mind right away. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, though, it's uh, I can understand. It definitely was. Uh iconic for us and changed our lives too. Well, Breakfast in America, I mean, the album took eight months to make. 
And we recorded in Los Angeles, and uh, I was uh, possessed. I mean, I, I was there 16 hours a day, seven days a week for months and months and months. Eventually, I actually moved my wife down to the studio because I never hardly ever went home. <clears throat> and uh, she, she was kind of living in a motorhome in the parking lot. <laughs> nice. So to avoid the 40-minute drive there and back at night and in the morning. But I knew it had to be right. I, I just knew that uh, you know this was pre-computers, so everything was manual. Hmm. We, I just knew the mixes had to be right for the final versions of the songs because you can't go back and fix them, you know. And I think we did. I mean, I, I feel very proud of the results. I think the mixes, there's nothing. I can listen to the mixes and think, not here, wow, I wish that was louder or, you know, we didn't get it right on this one like I did on some of the other albums. So I think we really nailed it. Pete Henderson did a wonderful job. He was the engineer. Again, you know, I was just uh, up against the deadline too. There was a tour plan. The record company was screaming at me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it had to be right. And uh, it, I think the, the dedication to really getting it right really paid off, obviously. Before the album, you had a certain level of success here in America, but once that album came out, that really changed everything. It did. It, it, it really dramatically changed our lives. I mean, it was, um, we'd had a, a slow rise to success, if you like, um, but with Breakfast in America, especially in America itself, it, it, everything exploded. Mm -hmm. And then the album was number one, as you probably know, in every country around the world, but not just for a week. I mean, for multiple, some, right. some places for months. And uh, the singles kept on coming, you know, uh, the logical song was the first single. Mm -hmm. Goodbye Stranger, the second, uh, Take the Long Way Home, they just kept on coming. And it was, uh, everyone tells me it was playing out of every dorm room in the, in the country. <laughs> <laughs> How did you settle on... Uh Breakfast in America as, as the title. Did the song come first or did the concept for the album come first? The song came first. I actually wrote the song at age 18, which was 12 years before we recorded it. And um, it was uh, a song I wrote in about an hour. And uh, I was in England dreaming of going to California and seeing all the pretty girls there. And I don't think I censored myself. I was just writing whatever came came into my mind. And, and uh, little did I know that 12 years later, we'd be recording this song and it would became the, become the title track of such a huge album. But it seemed like a, when we did record it, it seemed like a great title. We were, at that time, we were living in California and uh, had been for a few years. And it just felt like a good title for an album and summed up the feeling of of the songs on that album. Here's Kurt Cobain talking about Courtney Love and the film clip for Nirvana's In Mentioning in Bloom. I, I'm not I'm not really opposed to videos. I don't I don't I don't hate them. Uh, sometimes they're fun to do. Especially that video was fun to do because it only took us six hours. <laughs> Normally a video will take a, a whole day, just like really? over and over and over. We only 
had to listen to the song like four times. And it was great. So it was really great to be able to do that. And it was totally spontaneous. Um, Courtney um, had brought some dresses with her. She was taking them to a friend's house. Or she didn't know she had borrowed some dresses from a friend of hers. And so I thought, hey, let's put some dresses on and, you know, dance around in those. And that was just. You know, everything was just pretty much spontaneous. The the the, the basic idea was just to, um, you know, do a video that looked like it came from the early '60s or, or the or the late '50s. Well, but uh, what about the other version that you were marked with suits and all like that? It was, it was done in the same day. Yeah. Just you just change your clothes. And yeah, we just change our clothing. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and you mentioned that Courtney came with that, those dresses, and she's recording right here. I mean, do you, by any chance, interfere with what she's doing uh, some in, in her work, or how much does one uh, interfere with other works? Um, yeah, we get in each other's way every once in a while. Well, well uh, yeah, but I mean, more, uh, more uh, intentional. Uh, we, well, we, we just like to be together all the time you know we're best friends she's my best friend and so when she's playing music I like to listen to it and maybe suggest some things and she does the same thing with me too and um, she's just this was just an opportunity for her to see she came with us and and her and Patty her drummer came too it's just a vacation and so this was just a, a, a spontaneous thing for them to just make a, a few demos and See what they're gonna do with it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. on forever because the more I look the more I find great in and or out songs but I wanted to add this song by a good friend of mine LA based New Zealand born Melbourne stained singer Lisa Crawley here's Lisa's entitled Up in the Air that mentions LA and the clip was shot in Melbourne check out the golden magic page on my website arockandrollrabbithole.com and you can check out the film clip there There's also a playlist of Lisa's great songs on the Victims tab of the website as Lisa featured in episode 10's All About the Ladies. Up in the Air by Lisa Crawley. Flew to the city of LA Sleeping pills in my system But I'm wide awake, wide awake for you 
Heart Attack has two entitled songs and both of them are called In the Lap of the Gods. Side 2 opens up with In the Lap of the Gods and Side 2 ends with In the Lap of the Gods. Then in some fucking brackets, revisited. Check out episode 20 and you'll understand my frustration with the brackets. I love both of these songs and they're both completely different standalone songs. They just happen to share a title. The first one has a ridiculously epic intro with some super high Roger Taylor falsetto vocals, then a sparse verse, which is mainly piano and Freddie's studio tuned down vocal. In the Lap of the Gods by Queen. I've pitch shifted the verse up and you can hear it here. First, here's the album version. I 
and here's roughly where I think it would have been recorded. The second one, Lap of the Gods Revisited, is Freddie Mercury's first attempt at specifically writing a crowd sing-along song, like his later masterpiece, We Are The Champions. There are some similarities with We Are The Champions in my ears, like this riff. And then this riff from We Are The Champions. Anyway, here's In The Lap Of The Gods Revisited and its crowd designed sing-along outro. With a great bass line from John Deacon doing some micro-moosing. Just one more word on this version of In the Lap of the Gods. I love it how on live versions, Freddie sings the words easy and risky in falsetto, which are the notes B and A. Then the words funny and money, which are the notes A and G, which he does in falsetto on the record. He belts those notes out full voice live in 1986 at Wembley. Check it out here. early mid 70s he went for three falsettos and a low money But in the later 70s, he often went for a quadruple low note. Money. That's all you want. 
Anyway, I just listened back to that and I was almost putting myself to sleep, so apologies. We shall move on from my Freddy nerdery, but I do like the 1986 vibe the most. And one last thing, just quickly, the 1986 Wembley version was when Freddy said this famous line. So the last of my choices with songs that I love with either in or out in the title is an American band covering this song by a little known Aussie band called Love Positions. Love Positions were a duo consisting of Robin Sinclair, the song's author, and also Nick Dalton. Nick, who's an Aussie, was playing bass in the Lemonheads at the time, so that's the connection. This is a pop song that I've always loved. Could have easily been in last episode's Body Parts, but I went with a different Aussie song for the arms with a similar title, which was Into My Arms by Nick Cave. But here's Into Your Arms by the Lemonheads. So that's the last of the in or out titled songs before I get to my favourite, but I want to include a funny, crazy or interesting story in each episode about one of the songs or artists, and this episode's story is about ACDC again. ...includes his special report on evil rock by examining the possible connection between heavy metal and one of the most heinous crimes Los Angeles has ever seen. Larry. Thank you very much, Terry. The crime is the walk-in killings. The suspect... Richard Ramirez. And the question is, did the band ACDC drive him onto a personal highway to hell? The night was March 17th when the walk-in killer struck in Rosemead, murdering Dale Okazaki in her new condominium. The killer left behind a baseball cap embroidered with the logo ACDC. of Richard Ramirez says the suspect was attracted to the satanic themes in the ACDC album called Highway to Hell, his favorite song, The Night Prowler. The walk-in killings have intensified the debate over violence and devil worship in some heavy metal music. Many times it perpetuates the anger. The loud music, the, the beat of the music, the intensity of the music, the words to the music, oftentimes promote anger. But when it comes to ACDC, rock journalists disagree. 
That band is about as tongue through cheek as you get. It is very hard for me, for example, to swallow the widely printed assertion that their very name is some form of uh, 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 anagram for Antichrist. We attended an ACDC concert at the Forum two weeks ago, a sold-out event that, in all honesty, seemed rather tame. In fact, the band's fans seemed somewhat bedeviled by all the fuss. Well, I'm not into the devil or nothing. I think they're just a good rock and roll band. They groove. I see no difference between them and any other heavy metal band. They're, they're good rock and rollers. sort of people we are, if you were really interested in being devil worship, you would go off and do that. You know, it's an art in itself. <laughs> and it's, it's about as far away from what we are as anything. But three days later... The rock group ACDC has cancelled its concert for tonight at Costa Mesa's Pacific Amphitheater. Local community groups reportedly pressured the promoter to tame the show down. ACDC instead withdrew. You're being told what you can do and can't do, you know, and uh, that's not what this country's all about. ACDC, are they mere musicians or accomplices as well? Some media reports have suggested that Richard Ramirez, the so-called Night Stalker, accused of murdering 15 people in California, was influenced by the ACDC song Night Prowler. I mean, you get it, your inspiration from something. In the case of that song, it's been completely taken out of context. The story come from, mainly there was a guy that used to steal underwear off people's laundry lines. And that inspired, well, it wasn't Brian that wrote the lyrics, it was a guy, Bon Scott, since dead. That inspired him to go out and write a song about that. That's what Night Prowler's about. That's what Night Prowler is about. Congress has been holding hearings recently on the subject of whether there should be warning labels on records whose lyrics are judged objectionable. A prime target for those who favor the labels? ACDC. ACDC. Some people say that stands for Antichrist Devil's Child. Does it? It came from the back of my sister's sewing machine. <laughs> sewing machine? Yeah. You know, it's on any electrical appliance. It's power. It just means power. Doesn't it frustrate you that uh, your lyrics have engendered all this controversy when, when, when you find they have perfectly innocent meanings? Well, in a way, I, you get a bit insulted in a way, I mean, because mainly it's, it's music. I mean, what stands left is the songs that you have written that have been good. This is what gets missed out entirely. People are just going for the voodoo side of it, you know. Their music, they say, is for kids. They say that kids don't misunderstand the relative innocence of it, and kids ought to pass that message along. So in the 80s in America, there was a committee set up called the PMRC, which stood for the Parents Music Resource Centre. And it was set up in the shadows of rising political conservatism under Ronald Reagan. Their main idea was to set up a rating system for lyric content in music, including printed warning stickers on covers. They also made a list called the Filthy 15, which had what they considered the most offensive songs, which included Prince's Little Nicky, Motley Crue's Bastard, Judas Priest, Eat Me, there you go, Scott Hughes, Madonna's Dress You Up, Cindy Lauper's She-Bop, ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You, and a heap more. By 1985, 19 record companies had agreed to use the stickers that said parental guidance, explicit lyrics, for the front of their albums. And they also had a Senate hearing 
And on Side Rock was Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister, John Denver and Frank Zappa, who testified and defended their right to free speech. You can actually see the interviews on YouTube. The stickers obviously had the opposite effect, as kids look for the stickers to buy the albums so they could hear the content, and the bands actually got a little bit more offensive so they'd get the stickers on the front of their records to sell more albums. Looking back, it seems so stupid. Hopefully one day we look back at what is going on in 2021 with censoring and cancelling comedians, for example, for a slightly off-colour reference that's sometimes not even a joke. We all get offended by different things and it's hard to censor every part of life. Here's Aussie comedian and also drummer Steve Hughes' take on political correctness and offence. And then we have political correctness, which is, which is the joy that is the other side of health and safety, which is health and safety, which is a small oppression of our physical movement, so we can't do anything without permission from the state. And political correctness is the oppression of our intellectual movement, so no one says anything anymore in case somebody else gets offended. <laughs> what happens if you say that and someone gets offended? <laughs> well, they can be offended. Huh? <laughs> what, what's wrong with being offended? When did sticks and stones may break my bones stop being relevant? <laughs> Isn't that what you teach children, for God's sake? That's what you teach toddlers. He called me an idiot. Don't worry about him. He's a dick. <laughs> now you have adults going, I was offended. I was offended and I have rights. <laughs> well, so what? Be offended. Nothing happens. <laughs> You're an adult. Grow up. Deal with it. when you're offended, there's nothing. I, I went to the comedy show and, and the comedian said something about the Lord and, and I was offended. And when I woke up in the morning, I had leprosy. <laughs> nothing happens. I want to live in a democracy, but I never want to be offended again. <laughs> well, you're an idiot. a law about offending people? How do you make it an offence to offend people? Being offended is subjective. That has everything to do with you as an individual or a collective or a group or a society or a community, your moral conditioning, your religious beliefs. What offends me may not offend you. And you want to make laws about this? I'm offended when I see boy bands, for God's sake. It's <laughs> a valid offence. I'm offended. They're corporate shills posing as musicians to further a modelling career. And frankly, I'm disgusted. Right? <laughs> What am I going to do? Call the cops? Hello, it's me again. <laughs> They're on the telly this time. <laughs> Five of them, that's it. <laughs> yeah, white suits, dancing like girls, that's them. <laughs> Five minutes, I'll be out the front traumatised. Bye. <laughs> and with the last word on the PMRC is Lemmy from Motorhead. Now then, the PMRC... I like the McCarthy era in America. People are scared of them. But what nobody seems to realise is that if you wouldn't be scared of them, they couldn't do anything. Polis. Do you realise that, for Christ's sake? Why, why, how can radio stations broadcasting across the country be scared of a bunch of assholes like the PMRC? And what do you really think they're going to stop? They tried to stop Elvis Presley from every pulpit in America. They burned Beatles records in public in Alabama in the 60s because John Lennon said that they were more popular than Jesus. The fact that it was true had nothing to do with it. But it was only because people would do it. 
that they could pick up that shit and burn it. You understand? Nobody was frightened of them. In Hollywood, in the thir- in the 40s, I'm sorry, in the 50s, McCarthy, Reds under the bed, you know, and better dead than red and all of that shit. People in Hollywood were informing on each other, friends, right? Putting somebody else in the fucking hot seat because they then they wouldn't be and saying, I'm not a communist. But the motherfucker couldn't have done a damn thing, man. Everybody would not have been running around shit scared of him. And I think it's disgraceful. I mean, I hate to say that England is ever better than America because usually it isn't, you know. But in that case, it is. These people would get laughed off the face of the fucking earth in England. I, I can't understand they it. They wouldn't last they two days I in England. I cannot understand it. I, I, I just don't believe that anybody could attach any importance to what a bunch of shitheads like that have to say about anything. Probably come as no surprise to you And after spending 10 minutes discussing it on the phone In which that time he could have done it But thinks it's better that I waste my time recording Yet another fucking track Just so he doesn't have to do anything So yeah, you guess it This week there'll be no recapping So my favourite song with either an in or out in the title Has to go to a song that I just realised Could have gone in episode 3's countings As you can hear a distant 4 On the last beat of the guitar and hi-hat intro I'll enhance it for the purpose of musical nerdery. So my favourite rock and roll rabbit hole song that has either an in or out in the title is Back in Black by ACDC. so much again for listening and thanks to Rob Dean at Miyagi Do Studios for the podcast music and Paddy Cummings at Fingerprint Audio for web and tech help and another thanks to anyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast and as mentioned at the start if you do want to tell me what I did wrong could do better or got wrong in this free podcast that took me a few full days to put together you can send me a spell checked email at me.don'tcare.com and I'll get back to you within the hour or if you want to say hi you can get me on Instagram and Facebook a Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole podcast. Please share, subscribe, rate and review the podcast if you haven't done that. That's super helpful. Check out the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com for Spotify playlists for each episode, past episodes and the bonus episodes. Thanks again. Next week's episode is going to be something a little bit different, a similar format, but just one single tartan-covered rabbit hole, which has been an absolute pleasure to do the research on been a heap of fun so hopefully you enjoy that if not you know where to email me to end the podcast i'm going to add when i can an example of the topic that i enjoy from a lesser known band and for this episode we head overseas again to our first canadian band a band called the modern evolve the boys have a newish ep out called the age of innocence and it happens to contain an out-titled nugget 
I've given the EP a few spins and I really enjoy it. Check out the Victims tab on the website for a Spotify link to the EP and say hi to the lads on Instagram, The Modern Evolve, all one word. And I'll see you next week with something a little bit different. Thank you so much again for listening. The Modern Evolve, reaching out. See ya.
Scott Hughes.